Mac Power Users, episode 617, Back in Whack. Welcome to the Mac Power Users. I'm David Sparks and joined by my co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hello, Stephen. How are you today? I'm good, David. How are you? Uh, I am excited. I say this every time we get to a feedback show, but I really like doing these feedback shows. Me too. Yeah, it's it's fun to revisit stuff and you know talk about some stuff that we we don't normally get to cover. So we got a whole whole grab bag today. Yeah, and our listeners are the best on the internet, so they always give us lots of good stuff. Like I found out one thing for today's episode that is a total stealth feature of an app that I now love. So you just you just never know what you're going to learn. But uh, anyway, uh, we are going to go through a lot of feedback today. We've got a bunch of stuff to cover. Um, we also on more power users today, I have been living the laptop lifestyle and I have so much to say about my M1X MacBook Pro. So, um, I've been bombarding the main show with it for months. Uh, Steven is putting me in a box in more power users, but I have much to say. So we'll talk about that later. <laughs> we got to contain it somehow, you know? Do your best. Do your best, man. <laughs> that sounds like a challenge. I'm not yeah. sure I like that. <laughs> uh, a couple of things uh, before we get started. Um, off the top, we are uh, currently, we being Relay FM, uh, currently are running a special on annual memberships. And so if you are, a, are not a member of More Power Users, which is the ad-free longer version of the show each and every week. Every week we do an extra segment just for our members. You also get access to the Relay Discord, which is fantastic, and a bunch of other cool stuff from the network. Uh, if you've been on the fence about that, now's a great time because between now and December 17th, uh, 22% off any annual membership. And you want to go to giverelay.com. It's the first link in the show notes this week. And you can select uh, more power users from there, and yeah, your discount will be applied to your first year. So uh, we'd love for you to go check that out. Uh, and if you are a member, thank you so much. Uh, we it, It's such a, a huge deal for David and I uh, to know that you have our backs and to, uh, to know that we have uh, a base of listeners who are supporting the show directly. It means the world to us. So uh, thank you so much. But uh, if you're... If you haven't joined up, now is a fantastic time. Yeah, plus one to all that. It it really does make a difference. There's a lot of work that goes into preparing for the show, and you know, and you've got um, people that really you know support you. You want to deliver the goods for them every week, and uh, that's the way I feel about every podcast I make. But either way, um, Stephen, you have also uh, updated your streaming setup. Yeah, so I'm, I'm doing a couple things here. Uh, in 2020, basically, like all of my video production just sort of stopped. Uh, there was a lot going on. I had uh, the Kickstarter and the St. Jude campaign and expanding the studio. And now all that stuff's done and over. So I'm kind of finally back to video production stuff. Uh, so a couple things here. One, I've got uh, actually a couple new videos up on the... 512 YouTube channel. I'll link to one called The Voices of Mac OS, where I don't know if people know this. The you know, your Mac can speak to you and you can set the voice. The default Alex has been around for a long time. It's really, really good. But uh, there are a bunch of other voices you can optionally download and use. And a collection of those 
are like straight out of classic Mac OS, like some of the the weird kind of funny ones. And yeah. so I did a little video comparing them and uh, playing you some samples and stuff. So if you've never heard those or never explored them, uh, go check out that video. It was a lot of fun to put together. Now, I, have, I haven't watched it yet. I'm going to since we hang up here. But did you also cover the Siri voices on iOS? Or I did not. Video? Just just like looking at the the Mac voices that have been the same for decades. So I didn't really get yeah. into Siri. I may, I may do that in the future because I think the new voices are actually really compelling and interesting. Uh, but uh, this was more looking at sort of the, you know, the ones I remember from my childhood that are still present in Mac OS Monterey. Yeah, it is funny to me how... Um, uh, that that feature is in on your iPhone. A lot of people don't even realize it exists. It's under settings. I was just looking to see if I could dig it up really fast. Under Siri voice, under Siri and search, and you can pick male or female. And and mine offers American, Australian, British, Indian, Irish, and South African. But depending on what your native uh, language is, I mm-hmm. think it gives you even more options. And there's a bunch of them there. I really like. Um, kind of fiddling with that so yeah like i use a male siri voice and it's super easy to change that and you can pick between a bunch of different ones a few years ago i set my wife's iphone to australian siri and i thought she would find it charming um she did not find it charming that i changed a setting on her phone that she didn't know where it was so yeah don't prank anybody changing their siri voices Oh, I, I showed my sister how to do it. She set up a male British, like oh it's yeah, a, that's, it's the that's proper, good. it's the proper British. You know, there's like there's like a couple different British accents, and I think it really makes her happy. I think she uh, she really likes it. Anyway, yeah, that that'd be weird for me. It's just like Mike Hurley coming out of my HomePod. Yes, yes. Good day, Stephen. Oh, man. <laughs> no, no, go away. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any I don't have any accents in me, man. Every time I try, I just embarrass myself. Oh, so same. I, I should stop. Yeah. Total same. Um yeah, the the other uh, quick thing just on the the 512 YouTube front is that I am uh mm, I don't want to say I'm I'm winding down my Twitch channel, but I've kind of made the decision that I'm going to move my live streams to YouTube. Twitch has a lot of overhead that I just don't care about, like a lot of their cultural stuff that comes with Twitch streaming. I just like, I just don't care about any of it. So YouTube yeah. offers a simpler interface for everybody. Everyone has a YouTube account and that channel already has 23,000 subscribers where I was kind of starting new on Twitch. So yeah. one of the more recent things on there is me unboxing some computers. So look for more live stream stuff there as well. Um, and I unboxed a Macintosh portable. So very excited about that. Yeah, I'm actually really looking at some live streaming stuff. I like doing the webinars, but I think there's also room in my life for some live streaming stuff. And yeah, and YouTube is number one on my list. I looking at everything. I feel like you know that's probably where I'll end up. It's super simple. Everyone already knows how it works. You know, Twitch has a lot of really cool stuff, but unless you're like in that culture, it's just not. It's not the friendliest thing in the world to like come into. I think. All right, so we have something very special to kick off this feedback episode. Uh, David and I have the honor of being joined by Jeremy Butcher from Apple. If you saw the recent announcements about Apple Business Essentials, a new service that uh, Apple is offering, that's what we're going to talk about today. And I, I don't know about you, David, I feel like I'm with a rock star because Jeremy was in the <laughs> video. Like, yeah, I know, man. Big time here, uh, you know? Sounds like my family. And, and if you haven't seen him, I mean, he's a and handsome no devil. I mean, oh, there's no you. question. Thank, thank you. <laughs> uh, well, Jeremy, thank you uh, 
Thank you for joining us. Uh, I thought we could start with sort of the uh, the simplest part of this. Uh, what goes in to the Apple Business Essentials uh, service? What are you all looking at getting done for people? So this is a service that combines device management, storage, and support into a single subscription with the goal of helping small businesses tackle all the different things that come up um, throughout the use of Apple devices in their organization. So we, we think about the entire device lifecycle. So all those little touch points, little moments where people need help, we're trying to build a solution that helps with all those things. I mean, this is a, a big move for Apple, really, uh, Jeremy. I mean, for so long, a lot of our listeners and us have thought about Apple as a consumer-facing company, but you guys have been really making a lot of strides over the last few years over small and medium-sized business. What is the, um, you know, what is the target customer for the service? The target is um, small businesses. Um, we think that uh, like up to 500 employees is a good fit for the types of features that we've built. But really, there's no low-end minimum. If you are a very small organization, we feel like we've built a really easy-to-use product that can help you with these things as well. And it is kind of the continuation of, like you said, many years of different things that we've been doing for business. Um, but this is absolutely the biggest step that we've made and, and, and builds on a lot of those features that we've been building for a while now and kind of brings it all together in a way that we're pretty excited about. So you mentioned that this is, you think about this as a product. Um, what are the the individual components? So we talked about support and storage, but like, what does that look like maybe on the ground a little bit? Yeah, so support will be things like phone support and hardware repair. What you might expect from like an Apple Care Plus offering. Um, storage is what you would probably think about in the context of something like iCloud Drive. So you have a certain amount of storage. You can use it for storing things in the cloud. You can use it for backup. And then device management is all of those setup and configuration things that you would find in a mobile device management product. But we bring them all together and we think that it's pretty common that multiple of them will be in use at once in creating the experience for the employee because you sign into your device and not only do you get configured, but all your data comes down from the cloud. Or you get a repair, but you sign back in and you're set up immediately. So it's kind of the power of them working together that we think really uh, makes everything shine. Yeah, because the the landscape has really changed. I mean, I, I ran an Apple authorized service provider now like 13 or 14 years ago. It's ancient history. But then it, we really didn't have, especially the cloud component. And some of the device management tools were were very simple then. Um, could you give an example of, you know, maybe what that looks like for someone? They get hired at a company. Uh, Apple Business Essentials is is there. And they get handed a phone. What's that mm -hmm. end user experience going to be like? The only other thing they need is their work account, you know, which they're going to get handed uh, at the same time. It's, you know, what's your work email address and password? And it's basically, 
you know, take your iPhone out of the box in the setup assistant where you're asked for your Apple ID, sign in with that credential, and you've now enrolled your device, you finish the setup assistant, your apps start coming down, the business essentials app starts coming down, all your settings and those types of things. And so the tagline that we created internally before we even started talking about it externally was sign in to set up. That's the Hmm. simplicity that we wanted for the employee because we know what it looks like in a lot of cases today. It's go to a website, download a profile, double click on the profile and those different things. But we wanted it just to be like iCloud easy of just sign in and you're done. Now, how do people get started if they're interested in this and, and what are the costs or how are the costs calculated? Yeah. So today we're in beta. We launched it uh, right before um, the Thanksgiving timeframe um, here in the U.S., obviously. And so folks can go to uh, our website, apple.com slash business slash essentials, and they can apply for the beta today. Uh, they basically let us know who they are and, uh, you know, we'll review that and, um, and let folks in when we kind of fast forward to, uh, the spring of next year, when we come out of beta folks will go to business.apple.com, which is where you actually use Apple business essentials, uh, and they can sign up for the program there. And so that's kind of the, the mechanics of just what they do in terms of the cost we've created. Um, a a handful of different plans that folks can mix and match within their company. So some of them are for scenarios where I just have a single device and that's all we want to do is manage a single device. Maybe it's actually a kiosk where there's not even a person present and we just want to have device management for that without storage. So we have plans that kind of cover that set of use cases. Um, If I happen to have a Mac and an iPhone or an uh, an iPhone, an iPad and a Mac, we have plans that cover people with three devices per person. And as a company, we might have all of those different scenarios. And so you can go in and create these different plans and assign them to groups. And then the pricing on those plans ranges from $2.99 a month to $12.99 a month, depending on who it is that you've assigned it to and how many different have. But uh, the idea is that you have this estimate of your bill at any time and you can see, okay, I've got, you know, 12 of this plan and 15 of that plan. And you understand what your usage is going to look like. And I would imagine as employees come and go, it's easy to, you know, take someone's device back, make sure it's back in a, a known good state, all that user management's all handled centrally. Yeah. So even just kind of extending on the, the plan part, The model that we're uh, introducing is what like the industry would call postpaid as opposed to prepaid. So you're paying at the end of the month. So if somebody leaves your organization halfway through, you just deactivate that plan and whether or not you give it to somebody else, it doesn't matter because you've only paid for what they used for those first two weeks. Okay. And then on the, the more kind of technical MDM implementation side, yeah, you can take that device back, you can wipe it, you can hand it to the next person. And again, you give them their credential and they're up and running with that device in a couple of minutes. So there's kind of real flexibility on both the kind of financial and technical side. Yeah, there's a lot of third-party solutions people also use in their small and medium-sized businesses, you know, network-attached storage servers, things like that. 
Um, will this service be able to accommodate people who are using third-party services? Yeah, one of the one of the nice things about device management as a component of this is that it's an enabler to other apps and other services. So um, even with storage, we recognize that you know some folks maybe they've signed up with Google Workspace or maybe they've signed up with Office three sixty five and they've got Google Drive or OneDrive storage. Well, the beauty of uh, an iPad is we've got the Files app, and you can just have all those different storage providers layered in. Business Essentials could actually be the service that installed you know, OneDrive or Google Drive on your device to give you access to it. So it's very complementary in that sense. Same thing for, for NAS and things like that, where you've got uh, other ways that you want to do storage, for sure. iCloud being a, a part of this is, is really interesting to me. You know, all of us sort of out here in consumer land, you know, we know it as a service that all of our photos are in, all the backups, but most of us just have one iCloud account, right? Like I just have my personal iCloud account and because I'm self-employed and there's no lines, you know, all my work stuff's in there too. So how does iCloud, uh, how has it been adapted for this this work environment? I mean, is it as simple as you can have your business account and your personal account or these business-only phones? How does How does that pan out? So in the context of the device was purchased for me by my company and given to me, I'm going to sign in with that work ID and that's going to be the ID that's configured on the device. So I have my managed Apple ID and that's how I get access to this. In the context of BYOD, where somebody might have uh, an iPhone that they're bringing into the office or an iPad that they're bringing into the office, both iPhone and iPad actually support multiple IDs being signed in at the same time. And it's something that we introduced, I think, in iOS 13 that we made better in iOS 15. It's kind of something that most folks don't even know is there. But if they were on iOS 15 right now and they dug into settings, uh, they would see this new bit of the user interface that says sign in with your work account. Okay. And that's what we're basically leveraging in BYOD to add in your second account so that you can have that scenario where you're signed in with your personal account. You've got your Apple Music and all the other things, your photo library, like you were saying, but you can layer in your work account and enroll into Business Essentials. But then, all, like you said, all the iCloud Drive benefits of collaboration and notes and reminders and all those pieces also are available, but separate from your personal account. Okay. I just had the realization, you know, Apple talks a lot about uh, bringing software, hardware, and services together. And you were just like, oh, it got better in iOS 15, and now we're doing this thing. Like, yeah, of course they went hand in hand. That's how y'all work. (laughs) exactly. It's almost like it was coordinated in that way. (laughs) Almost. Yeah. 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 Apple famously does not say yes to very many things. You know, the company is very stingy with its attention. And this is such, you know, a, a step away from what we're all used to from Apple, you know, the business essentials product. Uh, but you guys chose to say yes to this. And um, I'm sure there's something behind that. Can you explain, you know, what is the problem you're seeking to solve and, and why is uh, business essentials here now? I think a lot of it stems from a little bit of what we touched on earlier, which is, you know, it's not like this is the first thing we've done for business. We've been doing um, a lot behind the scenes for a while from, from large enterprise all the way, you know, down to small business. And one of the things that 
we just kept hearing was, especially from the small business community, you know, we're doing all these amazing things with our iPhones, iPads, and Macs, but the more we grow, it's just more work to manage these devices. And that's not what we got into business to do. And we felt like there was an opportunity to come in and help with these these types of things, setup, onboarding, repairs, all that stuff that kind of distracts you from your day-to-day by bringing it into a single place where it's just super simple to get set up and you can kind of let it do its thing and run. But it really is uh, rooted in feedback that we heard from customers about, I'd like to do more of what I'm already doing with my Mac, but this is something that I find myself spending you know, more time than I'd like to do. Hmm. And so that's what it really is. Yeah, I mean, I, I know from you know way back in the day, uh, Apple being interested in supporting businesses and wanting to be in businesses. A lot of people, I think, view Apple as this big consumer brand, which it, it definitely is. But you know, uh, I don't think they do it as much anymore. But it used to be, you know, every iPhone event, it's like we're in this many Fortune 500 companies and all these things. Um, and so I can see how you would look at that as an opportunity to bring the experience that people have with Apple to sort of this this new level. Uh, the part that that really jumped out at me in the uh, in the introduction and in and in, in your video and everything else was the hardware side of things. And that's that's sort of my natural bent. You know, I like taking things apart. I was that kid, right? <laughs> taking apart the dishwasher, took apart mm-hmm. MacBooks for a long time uh, for a job. But uh, this does include some hardware support. Could you go into a little detail about uh, what that will include? Yeah, for sure. We have created something called Apple Care Plus for business essentials. And it is essentially one of the features of Apple business essentials. And it, it falls into one of the plans that you can create, basically. So inside of that is uh, phone support, what you might expect from Apple Care. Uh, in this case, it's 24-7. We cover your IT people, but also your employees. But then the part that that you're asking about is it also includes hardware repair or service as we kind of call it. And we're doing things like giving you repair credits that are included with your subscription so that if something does break in the future, you've got these credits where you've got zero out-of-pocket cost to get something repaired, whether that's a broken screen on an iPhone or a logic board on a MacBook Pro. It's a pretty valuable uh, thing, as you know, from being a, an AASP. Um, and then the other piece of that is we're also doing on-site service. So in addition to the next business day where we mail you something while you're mailing us your, your broken device or the ability to go to an AASP or a retail store, on top of that, we'll just come to you and we'll bring you know an iPhone that is what you need to be replaced uh, and we're going to do that in as fast as four hours. So that's a big, big step forward, we think, in terms of the the repair side of things. I can only imagine like that decision getting made. Like you didn't just like wake up one day and say, we're going to do on site. That that seems to me like something that a lot of thought had to go into before you could agree to it. Yeah, it it's hard to improve upon some of those things that I already mentioned. So the, the bar was, okay, if, if I can already solve a problem in 24 hours through next business day, 
And for a lot of people where they have a store or a service provider nearby, I can do it by the afternoon. Like what's next? Mm -hmm. And so when on-site became a possibility, that four-hour SLA was, I, I was surprised by how uh, how quickly we are trying to do it. And I'm thrilled that <laughs> we're able to do it um, because you're right. It was like, oh, wow, this is going to be, this is going to be yeah. a big deal for folks. So is it just going to be like a person in an Apple shirt that shows up at your, your business? <laughs> I mean, how, I don't know what shirt they'll wear, but yeah, uh, yeah it will be, a, yeah, be an Tuxedo, authorized, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Authorized repair uh, provider that, yeah, shows up in, you know, probably a van so they can carry around all the sure. different iPhone makes and models and everything else. But yeah, it's, it's um, you know, the other thing that's nice about it um, in a world where uh, folks head back to the office uh, at some point um, or already are in some cases, I know, but um, you don't have to be the one that's waiting around. You, It's like, if there's somebody that's like your office manager that's there all day, you can actually have the flexibility to go do what you need to do. And so we think that on-site for businesses is actually even more interesting uh, because there is that point of presence that is, you know, easy to get to and everything else. So we're excited about it. Yeah. I mean, I, I know businesses, you know, when it, from a phone to a MacBook, whatever it may be, right, that's taking someone out of their workflow, out of their task. And so getting them back up and running as quickly as possible is always is always key. Uh, what does this look like from a uh, sort of geography perspective? I know four hours in a city like, you know, Los Angeles is different than maybe where I live in Memphis or if someone's out in the middle of nowhere. How are y'all thinking about that as far as what you're roll out with now and maybe in the future? It's probably exactly what you'd expect is that we're going to start in some cities and we're going to expand as quickly as we can. And if you just guessed what the 10 or 15 were that we were going to start, you're probably right. And so it's really just get to the places like the LAs of the world where we have uh, some of the infrastructure established already, but then ultimately the goal is to go as far and wide as as we can. So, yeah. Yeah. I know that's it's not as big as a pain point now, but I know like for a long time, our retail store in Memphis, we served like West Tennessee, all of Arkansas, all of Mississippi. And as time goes on, these things get better and easier to reach. And so I'm I'm sure that y'all will be hard at work on that. Yeah. Well, I'm sure we'll learn a a ton as quickly as we can and apply all those to the next cities and the next cities. Yeah. Have somebody crossing a mountain in a few years, you know, with an iPhone slung over their shoulder. It's going to be great. Exactly. No, yeah, I, yeah. I think it'd be one of those dogs, you know, with St. Bernard. The, yeah. With, yeah, yeah. The, with a wooden bucket <laughs> and an iPhone yeah. in it. Yeah. And they just show up and the, and the bucket opens up and the iPhone comes out. Oh man. Smoke. We I, solved yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> You're Perfect. welcome. I'll write the requirements document now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is actually, you know, a, a pretty crowded market. I mean, there's a lot of people doing device management and various flavors of the stuff you've talked about today. Where do you see Apple fitting in into this landscape as you guys get started? So, you know, the small business part is, is a key. There's a lot of folks that are doing this that are very focused on large enterprise. Part of the reason that we saw the opportunity that we did is that uh, we think for small business, there, there are folks that aren't quite yet having their needs met. The other thing is that we're trying to expand this beyond what device management alone can do with some of the stuff we just talked about. And so that's where we think we can provide more value. 
at the end of the day, though, if somebody is using, uh, you know, a Mosul or a Jamf now or any kind of solution and they're happy with it, we're thrilled. And so this is not about going after, uh, you know, uh, this market in a way that's trying to be competitive, but it really is something where we just see such a big opportunity and a lot of folks that need a little bit more help. So yeah, if you're, if you've got something in place or, um, even if it, you know, it's on the storage side, same kind of thing, it's great. We're, if you're happy, we're happy. Uh, and that's the kind of the luxury that we have as the, as the whole package, if you know, the hardware, the software and the services, like you said, if you're happy with your iPhone, your iPad and a Mac today, then, then that's great. But if you need a little bit more help, that's what we wanted to kind of do. Yeah. And I really think you're right. I think there's so many people out there that don't have these types of services who are, you know, they really need it. And there's yeah. a lot, there's a lot of good reason for this. And, uh, I think there's the pie is not limited. There's a lot of pie to grow out there for this right. business. Absolutely. Yeah, we agree. Well, Jeremy, we really appreciate you coming on the show today and sharing with us. Obviously, a lot of our listeners are are in your target market. I mean, we've got a lot of small businesses listening to the show. I'm one myself, and uh, we're always interested when Apple has something new to offer and uh, really appreciate your candor and coming on the show and answering the questions today. Of course. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. This episode of Mac Power Users is made possible by Text Expander from our friends over at Smile. Text Expander removes the repetition out of work so you can focus on what matters most. Just think about the things you type on a daily or weekly basis. For me, of course, it's lots of things like email addresses, physical addresses, that sort of thing. But there's a lot more that I use Text Expander for. For instance, if I post a YouTube video, I've got some boilerplate text there about how to subscribe, you know, links to my podcast, that sort of thing. Why would I type that over and over? Why would I go hunt it down on a previous video, hit copy, go to the new one, hit paste? That doesn't make sense. I just have it in Text Expander. In a few keystrokes, it expands automatically where I'm already typing. That makes it better than copy and paste, better than some scripting or template that I have to use. Text Expander just makes it really quick, and it lets me maximize my time by getting rid of the repetitive things that I type all the time. The best part is Text Expander is available on any platform, in any app, any place you can put text on the Mac or iOS or Windows, you can use Text Expander. So take back your time and increase your productivity. Mac Power User listeners, you'll get 20% off your first year if you visit textexpander.com slash podcast. That's textexpander.com slash podcast for 20% off your first year. I really couldn't do my job. I couldn't have my computing lifestyle without Text Expander. So my thanks to them for an amazing tool and for sponsoring Mac Power Users. TJ is always there to keep us honest. Uh, we were talking about iCloud and downloads, and I went too fast. We were talking about um, downloading files, and the point I wanted to get across was that um, if you are running a backup system and using iCloud storage, you need to make sure that your device is getting all of the downloads downloaded. You know, I mean, you don't want stuff stuck up in the cloud because then it doesn't land on the backups. And um, I was talking about hitting the little 
pointy arrow and like it's just been working for me for so long i kind of forgot that what i'd actually done and tj pointed this out because he's done the same thing is if you go into icloud settings into the system preferences and under icloud there is a box in there that you can uncheck it's checked by a default as far as i know called optimize mac storage and that's because for a lot of folks, the storage that you get on your Mac isn't sufficient to hold everything in iCloud. But if you've got enough storage and you uncheck that box, then on that Mac, it's just going to download everything. So that's a very easy way to get everything downloaded to a single Mac. I totally should have covered that when we discussed it, and I didn't. Sorry about that. Mea culpa. Mea culpa. Yeah, it, Mea it's culpa. like um, it's like in Photos, right? In the Photos app, you can say download everything or just have the thumbnails it's kind of like that but for your files it will download them on demand if you go like to access something and it's not local but if you want it in the backup if you want it kind of part of your overall system you can uh you can turn that off and it's i think it's a little confusing to some people i've run into this with family and even some like consulting stuff where uh someone has this on like it's on by default the iCloud Drive stuff is on by default when you set up a new Mac now. So your desktop and documents folders will automatically sync. And then if you don't have enough space, you get the little like the little cloud download icon, like you see in the music app, if something is not fully local. And I know I think Apple could I would like to see Apple try to tackle this in a way that maybe makes more sense for some people. I don't know if everyone like fully is like clear on what's downloaded, what's not, what that means. And I think Apple could do something interesting there. You know, right now it basically works like Dropbox. You have sort of have a representation of the file, but it's not downloaded until you go interact with it. If you have optimization turned on, I think all that could be a little bit simpler maybe. Well, like I'm even thinking, I'm not sure I know everything that's downloaded because I have, had this turned off i've got everything to my knowledge downloaded but then i'm looking at my you know my graphical representation my cloud storage we're on family sharing looks to me like there's like a half a terabyte here of family data like Mm -hmm. my kids and my wife's photo albums and whatnot and i don't see that any of that has downloaded to my mac when i turn off optimized storage i think even then you're not getting everything to your device yeah, you, you won't get things that so I have the same thing, like 462 gigabytes is under family. So it's, you know, mostly probably my wife's photo library. Yeah. Um, you won't get stuff that's from other, other people. people. Yeah. Man, I've got 82 gigabytes in messages. That, I should probably look at that. <laughs> it's a lot yeah. of stuff. It, it holds on to all the attachments. Yeah. Um, there's a button to clear that out. And that, that comes with the uh, iCloud messages, you know, the syncing. Mm-hmm. It's good, but... I like that feature, yeah. It's like something you got to keep an eye on. And then the other piece of that, just getting, getting back to the intersection between family storage and photos, since you've raised the question, if you're going to turn off local storage for iCloud stuff, you should also do the same thing for photos. If you're make, trying to have a Mac that has all your data on it for a complete backup, um, I think a lot of people miss those are two check boxes you need to hit one in photos and one in iCloud. Although now as I say the words out loud, I'm thinking, wouldn't the one for iCloud storage override and still put all your photos down even if you didn't have I th- it unchecked? I, I think 
Uh, my understanding is that that Apple treats photos and everything else as sort of two separate things. And so you yeah. can have them set independently and they don't interfere with each other. So you could say, yeah. download all my photos, but don't download all my stuff in Finder or vice versa. Well, then turn them both off so you've got optimized. So turn off optimized storage for both of them if you want to make the Mac that you're working on be the one that gets all the backup love. So, and then... The flip side of that is if we're not getting our family data and you don't want your wife one day to come at you with a hatchet, um, make sure that you have a way to back up her stuff as well. Yep. Um, so it may mean turning off optimized storage on her Mac as well or having an external drive. Um, I really have, you know, I wrote and published a photos field guide and knock on wood, I've had very few emails from people that had any trouble with storing photos in the iCloud. I think Apple's got pretty good at that, but you never know. And if that's your only place of storing it, um, that is a risk. So, you know, think about it. You can attach an external drive to her computer, for instance, and copy the images there. I mean, there's a lot of ways you could do it short of of downloading everything, but, but make sure you got that covered, you know. Yeah. You don't want your significant other um, losing pictures or your mm-hmm. kids. No, if you're if you're a listener of this show, your you, people in your family should have their data backed up. Um, the other thing I was going to just mention while we're in this iCloud preference pane on the Mac is in that iCloud storage bar at the bottom, you can see what's taken up. Um, and if you go to manage and there, you can kind of drill down into individual things. And something I noticed just while we were recording and I'm sort of clicking around is that I had like a hundred gigs of device backups, many from devices I don't own anymore. So like yes. my old iPhone and old iPad. And so you can, I don't need those backups anymore. So you can go in there and remove those, delete the backups from iCloud. If you're, if you're crunch for space on your iCloud plan, spend some time in that manage tab because there may be things that you don't need anymore, or maybe you weren't uh, aware they were, they were stacking up on you. Like I didn't know I still had my backup for my uh, iPhone 11 pro in here. Like I don't need that backup anymore. So I, (laughs) I removed it and saved quite a bit of space. Yeah. And uh, just one more thing. We're just going to unload on this, this uh, option here, guys. Uh, I didn't say earlier to get to it. It's not, it's a little confusing. There used to be an iCloud button in the system preferences. If you haven't looked in a while, it's now all under the Apple ID button. So you yeah. actually click Apple ID to get to it. Um, uh, one other thing I'd recommend is private relay. Um, turn it off. Uh, private relay is a new feature they added in Monterey. It's kind of like a VPN, but not really. Um, I have noticed when I turn private relay on it, it's listed as a beta feature right now, but it just brings my internet speed to a crawl. So um you know, your results may vary, but it looks to me like this one needs more time in the oven. Same. I, I played with it uh, after it came out. And again, it's listed as a beta, but not something that I'm I'm running day to day by any means. Yeah. Um, and one more piece of information here. And Stephen, this is a request I have for the audience because I spent 30 minutes this week trying to figure out how to add more iCloud storage to a maximized two terabyte mm. account. 
Um, there, there are articles on the internet that say you can, but every time I follow all the links, they say I, I'm supposed to push it's not there. I, I don't know if Apple's turned it off or not. Um, I'll have to figure that out. But you know, if anybody there has figured out how to add more to two terabytes in me an email, because yeah. my family, yeah, the way we take pictures, we are pushing ourselves close to the line here. Yeah, because it, it seemed like when they announced Apple One, you were going to be able to add additional storage. Yeah, there was a bunch of articles written saying you can. Yeah. And I'm not sure that they did that. So. I don't, yeah, I mean, I don't see it. I mean, I'm looking at mine now. I've got two terabytes yeah. because I'm an Apple One subscriber. Uh, our family uses right at one terabyte of data. And like, we're like right against it. And so we're on the two terabyte plan because there's nothing in between. And yeah. I don't see a way to add it. Yeah. If someone has seen that, I'd love to know too because they talked about it and maybe it's just, uh, it's just not out yet. But, you know, some people, especially in a family, like four terabytes would be pretty great. I mean, I would imagine y'all, I mean, my kids don't really have their own devices yet. Just wait, man. Just Yeah, wait. I know it's coming. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and it, it, yeah, it's a problem. So hopefully they'll get that sorted as well. Well, TJ, thank you for sending us down a great rabbit hole under the uh, system preferences under the Apple ID tab. There's a lot of gold in there. One of them is a button that allows you to make sure everything gets downloaded to your Mac. Better touch tool. Yeah, you have something in here uh, in our show notes about that, that you have learned something about better touch tool that blew your mind. And so I, I would love to hear this. There's two things about better touch tool. And I'm going to, I'm going to put a pin in the one that blew my mind. Okay. We got that one in, in a later point, but better touch tool came up several times in the email this month. Uh, listener Conti wrote in explaining that uh, we we got into the subject of window management. You know, how do you put a window on the left side of the screen or the right side or the upper left quadrant or whatever? And we talked about uh, several tools for it. You know, um, you can do it with Keyboard Maestro. You can, I use Moom. Um, uh, Conti wrote in and said, hey, man, I already have Better Touch tool. And why do I want another app? And that's a great question because if you can keep it simple, that's better. That's what Conti preferred. And Better Touch Tool, we didn't mention at the time, but in addition to all the other amazing stuff that app does, it has really great window management. And it's got a built-in feature where you can drag a window to a corner. It's very similar kind of to the way Windows originally did it. Windows has kind of come another few steps since then, but it's uh, very easy. And if you already have Better Touch Tool, you're good. I mean, you don't need to do anything else. Um, that said, um, I wrote them back and the reason I prefer Moom for this is number one, I don't mind running another app. These apps use very little bandwidth and my computer is amazing these days. It can handle it. And, uh, the second thing is that, um, Moom just does such a great interface for setting up ideal screens that I really like the way it works. And it can save those as preferences that you can even trigger from the menu bar, as an example, I have a dedicated space on my Mac um, to communications. And mm-hmm. in it, I can see, the, you know, I've got th- stuff in Basecamp and stuff in um, Slack and stuff in Messages. And I've got all these different apps that kind of serve as communication portals to different areas that I do work in. And I just go to that screen and I know where every window is. I like the way that Moom does a little space between the windows so it doesn't feel uh, too compressed. 
And if things get out of whack, I push one button in the menu bar and everything gets itself back in whack. And um, so I just, there's a couple features in there. Like you can also tie those settings in Moom to keyboard shortcuts, which I've done. So I have a bunch of custom keyboard shortcuts for the way I locate windows. And then I trigger those, I can trigger those via uh, text expander. I'm sorry, I can trigger them via keyboard maestro and I'm also working on ways to trigger them now in shortcuts for Mac. So I can even use Moom as a window manager plugin to other automation apps. So there's just a lot I can do with Moom. And I think I paid $5 for it like a long time ago. <laughs> they are, uh, so I just don't care. Um, and, you know, that's why I do the way I do. But, but Conti's got a good point. If you've got one app that does it and you're happy with the feature set in it, then you can stop your search right there. Yeah, that sort of came up in our clipboard episode where a lot of these apps, something like Alfred or Launch Bar, Better Touch Tool or Keyboard Maestro, do a lot of things, right? Yeah. And I definitely don't mind having apps that overlap in functionality if one does something like more the way that I want it to. Um, I like Better Touch Tools window management. So that's, that's what I use. It works for me. But there's so many good options out there I don't think anyone should feel bad if they're running two utilities that have some some overlap. I think that's totally fine. I mean, a lot of these apps that do a lot of things versus an app that does one thing and is like really polished in that one area that may be a better fit. I think at some point we're going to, have to do another menu bar episode because the menu bar on my Mac is just embarrassing right now. I mean, <laughs> there is so much in it. And like when you see my screencast, I, I run... Uh, bartender when I screencast. So bartender hides everything except the app that I'm screencasting about and, and maybe a few other little things. But like, if, if you look at my screencast, I look like I'm so organized and I have like three things in the menu bar, but mm -hmm. you know, it's just like, you know, you go behind the curtain and I'm a sloppy drunk when it comes to menu bar items. It's crazy. <laughs> so I think we should do that at some point. Let's, let's do that next year. Okay. At some point. Yeah. Let's All check right. in. But um, then, then we got an email from Jim, and this was one of those emails I get that breaks my heart a little bit because I don't have a good answer for it. So I decided rather than research it, I would just dump it in Stephen Hackett's lap. and um, That's okay. And then, and then put it on air. So there we go. <laughs> I, I picked up what you sat down, you know. Um. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Jim wrote in, I need to add more USB-C ports to my Mac Mini and can't seem to locate a good solution. Those hubs don't seem to exist. Do you have a solution? Um, Stephen, how, how do we multiply USB-C ports? It's, 20, it, it's actually really tricky. And I, I did sort of reflect on it for a moment about we're in a world where people want more USB-C ports. That was not the case five years ago when it first showed up on the MacBook Pro. Yeah, that's uh, true. But you know, almost everything sitting on my desk uses USB-C unless it's like got a hardwired USB-A plug on the end of it. I mean, almost everything is USB-C now if you buy something new. And so you do run into this issue where you may need more USB-C ports. And while you can convert USB-C to USB-A going the other way isn't really a thing. And uh, the problem is from a bunch of I read like a white paper on USB-C hubs, David. Like I went further than it, than I should have. And that's why I handed this one to but, you, brother. <laughs> but, but basically, USB-C requires a chipset 
that manages each port. And before Thunderbolt 4 slash USB-C, which is the new version that's on the Apple Silicon Macs, uh, under the sort of USB-C slash Thunderbolt 3 era, there really wasn't uh, a good, like, functional way for hardware developers, you know, people who make docs, to really replicate more than one, maybe two USB-C ports in a multi-port adapter. So, you know, so they think about something from Anchor, right? It's USB-C on one end, and it's got HDMI and USB-A and maybe an SD card slot, you know, maybe. Maybe one USB-C, right? N- never more. Yeah. Right. And and that's uh, that's really that limitation of USB-C ports need this additional circuitry behind them. And really like the answer is thunderbolt and of course all of your usb-c ports on that mac mini are also thunderbolt uh that's not true on every like i think on the uh like on the imac i think some are thunderbolt another usb i forget but uh if you got thunderbolt ports which you probably do um that's really the way to do this because thunderbolt hat like basically supersedes all the usb-c uh, stuff and that even that said, most of these Thunderbolt hubs, like the OWC Thunderbolt hub, uh, which I've got, I know several people who are using this on their desk. I've got a Cal Digit, uh, which is also really good, but most of them have only two or three USB C ports along with a bunch of other stuff. And so, even going to Thunderbolt, like, may not completely solve the problem, but it's going to get you probably closer. Uh, closer to where you need to be. So I would check out the OWC. I would check out the Cal Digit, and and see if one of those gives you sort of the combination of of ports that you need. How are you dealing with it, Stephen? So so I've got a bunch of USB C ports on the back of my Mac Pro. Um, I do have a Cal Digit dock on my desk just to get some ports on my desk because the Mac Pro is off way off to the side. And even then, I mostly use it as an SD card adapter and maybe like plugging in an external drive or something. Uh, I don't have anything running through that dock uh, continuously, except I think maybe my stream deck is plugged into the back of it because I just ran out of ports on the back of my display. But um, I really like the Cal Digit. I can definitely recommend it. It is pricey, but also check out what OWC has. They they have a lot more options than um, than Cal Digit does. Yeah, I um I'm not a fan of these big docks. I mean, I understand that we need them because of the problems with USB-C, but they're hot, they're heavy, and yep. they're they're quite expensive too. You know, usually you're looking around 200 bucks to get into one. And they all have like an external power supply. The power supply for my my um CalDigit is yeah. like a weapon. It's humongous. Yeah. It's probably heavier than Jim's Mac Mini. Probably. Um, it's the size of yeah. a Mac Mini. Um, and so it's not like Thunderbolt is not a great option if you're like out on the go. But for the Mac Mini, you know, you can just like string the power supply under the desk and forget about it. Yeah. So I would I would look at Thunderbolt devices and and see if they give you what you need. Yeah, I, I would probably recommend starting with the OWC. They're a, a very reputable vendor. They stand behind their products, and they've got a thing where you plug one in and you get three out the back, and that's as good as it's going to get with yeah. the modern products out there. I've got that too, but mine is in the form of a Pro Display, and 
that is not a solution. I kind of lucked into getting a used pro display. So it's, it's, it's a long story. I'm embarrassed every time I mention on the show, because I have something that, you know, costs a lot more money than my first car, but you know, I got it used blah, blah, blah. Um, the, um, but it has three ports on the back and, I thought I'd share because I do. I'm able to get just one cable into my laptop nice. because of those three ports. I mean, it's got four ports. It's got one that goes directly to the laptop, and it's got three additional ports, right? Which is exactly what the OWC. Just and just to let you know how I'm using it, um, I've got one going directly to an OWC enclosed external SSD, and the speed bandwidth through that that monitor is fine. You know, I did the test. I watched the videos. It, it's very fast, so I'm good. Um, I've got one going to a 4K kind of like magnetic clip-on FaceTime camera that goes on top of the screen because in addition to owning a ridiculous monitor, it doesn't have speakers or a camera in it. <laughs> I know, yeah. Um, so, and in hindsight, I don't really need to plug that in directly to the USB-C port. I may move that because the third one is going to an anchor um, kind of multi-port USB-C device. And that one gets the Ethernet cable. It gets a couple USB-A cables. Like one USB-A cable out of that goes into a USB-A um, hub that's mm-hmm. that's uh, Velcroed to the bottom of my desk. And into that, I've got the Stream Deck and other stuff like that. And then I've also got one of the USB-A ports going directly to my... Um, my wave XLR, which I'm going to talk about later. So I have my audio device going through it as well. And that sounds like a lot of bandwidth to be pushing through a screen based hub, but you know, Apple did a really good job with that pro display and I don't see any problems at all with pushing data through the the thing. And the, the benefit of it all is that I can, um, I can then just plug one cable into my laptop when I plug in and I'm good to go except for the, uh, the speakers, which is, mm-hmm. you know, a little another problem, but the, uh, but it's all good. And I really think that, um, you can get by with one of these three port hubs, Jim, but you got to kind of strategize it and it may require you to like chain, um, these devices together. Like I'm doing, like I have a hub that has an anchor hub plugged into it. And I know that sounds really wonky, but it it's worked fine for me. This this made me think about the the M1. You know, there's this port limitation, bandwidth limitation on the M1, and I really hope with the next generation, let's just call it the M2 because we don't know what it's going to be called really, that they have more bandwidth for ports and that they actually take advantage of it. So, like maybe a new MacBook Air would have three or four USB-C ports or USB-C, you know, the two USB-C ports and MagSafe and an SD card slot or something. And especially the Mac mini and the iMac get additional ports in the future without having to step up to like the expensive Mac mini, you know, that we believe is coming or the higher end iMac, which we believe it's coming, but like the base model machines, I hope get additional ports with, uh, with later Apple Silicon chipsets. Yeah, I agree. And um and I, I think we live in a world where people are used to relatively inexpensive USB A hubs that are reliable. They are powered, but they don't need a Mac mini size brick. And I think, you know, Apple and the other technology companies need to come up with better solutions for us. 
maybe I'm, you know, arguing against the laws of physics here, but I feel like there's a, there must be a way to make this easier. If you really want this USB-C to become the end all be all for us, then it, it needs to be easier to duplicate ports. Yeah. And from, from what I read, the Thunderbolt four USB-C, like this new era that should alleviate some of this, but it's going to take a while for stuff to show up on the market, let alone be affordable in the market. I mean, you can get one of those anchor things for like 25 bucks on Amazon. I don't know if we'll ever get there with more USB-C ports, but I hope we do because the world is going that way. And to make it easier and easier, like that was sort of the promise of USB-C and we're not quite there yet. Well, I mean, is the world going that way though? I feel like there's just a huge letdown with USB-C in that um, it has been slow to adopt. It is more expensive to adopt and they're putting a bunch of different protocols on the exact same cable, you know, Thunderbolt versus USB-C versus charging cable. Like you can buy multiple cables that look identical, but don't do the same thing. And that seems to me like a huge failure for, for people like us. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by SaneBox. Go to SaneBox.com MPU and get a $25 credit on any plan. SaneBox is the email service that works with any email service. SaneBox learns what email is important to you and filters out what isn't saving you hours. It works with just about any email service and just about any email application. You don't have to have a special app to use SaneBox. Later in today's show, I'm going to be talking about how I'm really smitten with FastMail. Well, FastMail works great with SaneBox, so I now have FastMail rules working in the cloud, and I've got SaneBox working for me as well. Switching email providers did not take away my SaneBox power tools. And what are those power tools? There's a bunch of them. There's email filtering with the same later so you can keep in your inbox only what really matters, or the same black hole where you can unsubscribe with one click, They have snoozing so you can defer emails to the next day or next week or maybe next Saturday. They also have sane reminders. So when you send an email out to someone, you can copy it or blind copy it to one week at sanebox.com. If the receiver doesn't reply, you'll get a reminder one week to follow up. It's a great workflow for keeping on top of email. And SaneBox is more than filtering. They also have the ability to move your attachments to Dropbox or other cloud services. And they have pricing plans that start as low as $4 a month. And with the coupon code, you get a $25 credit. So just do the math there. You can get a lot of free SaneBox if you go try it out. They also have a 14-day free trial. If you're not convinced, give it a try. Mac Power users, listeners love SaneBox, and I love it too. I use it all the time. It's my secret weapon for email, and I use it every day. So once again, that link is sanebox.com slash MPU to get that $25 credit on any plan. Once again, sanebox.com slash MPU. Stop drowning in email. Uh, I wanted to talk a minute about some new software tools that I've been working with, and um uh, th- there's just a, there's a lot to say here on a couple of these. So I thought uh, it doesn't really fit into a, a whole show, but this is a good opportunity. And the first one is my email transition. Uh, right when we recorded the last feedback show, I had just switched my email uh, server to FastMail, and I wanted to talk about that. Yeah, yeah, you've been on a little bit of a journey with this. 
Well, I've been trying different things, you know, as always, and I usually am trying different apps, but uh, throughout this year, I've been trying different services. I spent three months in Hay. I spent some time working with Google stuff. And then, cause you know, I, you know, I, I got to spend time on these things before I talk about them. And then ultimately uh, looked for a, just a more powerful IMAP service. And I've been really happy with my switch to fast mail. Um, so fast mail is just another, you know, really fundamentally an IMAP service, although they have, an additional protocol they call JMAP. They're trying to kind of like expand things. But it's like, what if somebody decided to offer a mail hosting service and just go nuts on it and like give you all of the features? And that's really what FastMail is. What what are you using for hosting your mail, Stephen? It's it's Google, right? It's all Google, yeah. The company, we use uh, Google Workspaces and then my personal email is on Gmail. I like that they work the same way. Um, I like FastMail. We actually started out with Relay on FastMail, but we ended up switching to Google because we were using so so many other Google services. Like you know, it'd be we should really be logging this into this with like a company ID, right? So we have like central control over that stuff. And so yeah, for us, we sort of built on Google Workspace because of that. Um, but one thing that I really like about FastMail that you know. It really hasn't been an issue since, since, I guess, like Mavericks, there was a big problem with like Gmail and the Apple Mail app. But, you know, eventually Gmail is diverging from IMAP more and more. And that always like is a little a little birdie in the back of my mind of like, what happens if they just turn IMAP off one day and Apple doesn't play along? But we'll, we'll yeah. cross that bridge when we get there, I guess. But there's something I find like mentally refreshing that FastMail is is built on IMAP, but doing like cool stuff on top of it. That's still compliant with IMAP. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, the, uh, like I set it up as a company because I have a few people that help me out and they, um, so they needed their own email addresses. Uh, Daisy, by the way, now is on team X Sparky. So there you go. Uh, keeping, the, uh, keeping so, you in line. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, Disney, it's just been really hard for her to get back to her old job. So she wants to do something. I'm like, boy, I could use some help. So so she's stepping in. And uh, But so we've got uh, all these user accounts. But the nice thing is uh, when you set up FastMail for a company, or you could do this individually too, when you have aliases, you can easily direct where they go. Like if somebody sends an email to gift at maxbarkey.com, that's how if you want to gift a field guide to somebody, it goes to doesn't go to just me. It goes to somebody else as well, you know. And so there's certain like questions or problems that you may have with a field guide where the email gets routed to someone else right at the source. And I find that really handy. That was a service I was able to use with Hey as well, but now I've got it working just fine with FastMail. And once you set up the FastMail service, uh, connecting these dots is really simple to set up the email alias and point it there. It's like if you've got a small company, it really gives you a lot of power at the server level. And that's kind of the theme of FastMail is, you know, I always talk about this stuff in contrast. Like I'll say Gmail has great, great server side rules, but I'm not just a fan of the the whole Gmail ecosystem. I don't want to like tie my wagon to it, but there's really nothing else like it. And I, I would argue FastMail is like it. It's a little different, but like you can even use regular expressions in the online based rules. 
which you could arguably say is more powerful than Gmail. But I don't want to get into that fight, so don't email me about it. I know that there are things you can do with Gmail you can't do with Fastmail and vice versa. But the fact is, it's a contender. I mean, it it absolutely has way more power in the online-based rules. Like another example for the Max Barkey business is there's a particular type of support email that arises out of Teachable, which is the platform where I distribute the field guides. And I'm able, using Fastmail rules, to identify those emails as they come in and not only send them off to the person who helps me with customer support, but also route that email right into my priority mailbox. So I don't even see it in the inbox. It just goes straight. Because I have, you know, the priority mailbox is the one I try and clear out every day before I go to bed. I don't have to look at it in the inbox and move it there. It just goes in there. Because I don't really process email in the inbox. I process it you know, based on what box it's in. But so using Fastmail, I can route those emails directly into specific boxes. Um, It's just, you know, it's really powerful. And then like they've got apps now for iPhone and iPad and Mac that are really, you know, give you access to all this rule stuff on your devices so you can change rules and set them up. And it's just kind of opened up a whole world of additional email automation for me that is cloud-based that I've I've never really had with any prior IMAP service. And, you know, me being a nerd, I really dig on this stuff. And, like, we've got a whole episode that just published on, um, on the automators about email automation. It's episode... 87. And a lot of it is me just digging in on these fast mail rules, but I've, I've grown even more, uh, since we published that episode. Um, so I think if you don't want to use Gmail and you want to use IMAP, um, I am a fan of fast mail. I don't have like, I don't have a relationship with them. This isn't a sponsor thing, but I just think that they're doing great work. And, um, to me, this is the best IMAP I've ever seen. And being able to to really have hefty online-based, cloud-based rules with my IMAP is is one of those peanut butter plus chocolate moments. Yeah, that, that's cool. I didn't know their rules were so powerful. It's, it's good to know. You are looking at a task manager. Yeah. Yeah. So I've used Todoist for uh, a really, really long time. I mean, years. And it's, I mean... Todoist is fantastic. It's it's the winner of my book for a lot of reasons. But I tried maybe like a year and a half ago Good Task on the recommendation of Federico Vitici. Good Task is an app that is built on top of the Reminders database. So if I open Apple Reminders, like all the lists that I have in Good Task are also in Reminders. And if I check them off one place, it can check it off the other. It also means you can just use the Reminders Siri integration and shortcuts integration and just works with good tasks because it's all the same database. Uh, so I've, I've moved some stuff into good task and been, and been using it for a couple of projects, just kind of kicking the tires again. And one feature that I really, really like about it, And the reason I want to talk about it on Mac power users is the quick actions feature. And so these are like macros you can run against any task. And so I've, I've set up, I think I have nine of them set up. Most of mine are around uh, repeating patterns because a lot of my tasks repeat because like owning a business is just being on the same treadmill every month, right? Like the 15th of the yeah. month, I got to do these things. You know, this yeah. week was the last week of November. So the end of the month, I've got stuff to do. And so a lot of my stuff is repeating. And instead of using their UI for the repeating stuff, which is totally fine, I 
can have a bunch of quick actions set up. So it's like I can just enter a task name and hit repeat every day, hit one button, and it automatically sets uh, sets that up for me. Uh, I've got a couple of snooze ones. Uh, I've got one that says uh, I have this called set due time where I have like 9 a.m., uh, 12 noon, 4 p.m., and 8 p.m. as like presets. So I can hit that button and then pick from one of my preset times. Because sometimes what I'll do, sometimes I'll have tasks to do like around the house in the evening. And just so it, it sends a notification, all of it's set to 8 p.m. Uh, you know, our kids are in bed about like 8.15 or 8.30. And so, okay, we're getting the kids to bed. It's a good reminder of, hey, after the kids go to bed, you need to do X, Y, or Z. And I could use their UI for that, and it has natural language processing. It's not as good as Todoist, but it's pretty good. But I can just like tap a button and pick a time real quick and just move on. So I've really, really fallen in love with these these quick actions as a way to have like in-app shortcuts or macros uh, per task. And I think that's uh, it's something that, that I think is pretty unique to Good Task. I, I haven't really seen this sort of uh, tool and a lot of other apps, at least ones that are so configurable. Basically, anything you can do in the UI of Good Task, you can set up as a quick action and just do with a, a single button press. It's it's pretty cool. Yeah, you know what? This looks like a really good app. Um, it's a, a subscription model, ten dollars a year. But you know, I, I guess there's a there's two parts to this story. The first is. Apple has quietly been making reminders a very credible app, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like Notes got that treatment a few years ago, and now Reminders is on that train. Yeah. And every year, it's getting, like, better and more solid. And we all have our little, like, things we don't like about it. But mm-hmm. I think for a lot of task management, Reminders is enough. And this good task is, like, a great idea. Of like, hey, let's bolt on a, a feature set on top of that. Yeah. Just like Fantastic Al takes your calendar data and makes it better. Good exactly. task takes your reminders data and makes it better. I'm going to download this. I'm I'm going to look at this. Uh, I'm looking at in the new year. I want to spend some time with all of the task apps and just kind of audit them and mm-hmm. see what's out there. Um, I OmniFocus is still killing it for me, and I'm doing some really difficult things right now. And OmniFocus is really delivering the goods for me, but I also just kind of want to see what's out there. So. I think uh, you know spending two or three weeks just using reminders, or maybe reminders plus good task is is definitely on the agenda for me. Yeah, it, it's it's come a long way. Uh, the other thing I really like about Good Task is actually the community around it. So they run a discourse just like we do at talk.magpowerusers.com. But this forum has like tons of people like helping each other. The iOS app is completely themable, so you can change all the colors, all the typefaces. That's not in the Mac app, and I kind of wish it was, but there's like a whole section in their form with themes. And so I found one that someone basically took the color scheme out of things, which I think is like the most beautiful task manager humanity's ever created. It yeah. just makes good tasks like use that color scheme. So that's what I'm using on my iPhone and my iPad, which I keep in dark mode. And uh, really liking that, really liking the community around it. So uh, I think it's going to be, um, I think it's going to stick around for me. I agree with you that Reminders has come a long way. It's still just a, a little fiddly for me in places uh, where the quick actions and good tasks just make things so much faster. But 
the sync has been has been really solid. Apple's reminders database uh, is is really fantastic. I mean, I, I enter something on my phone and like I'm sitting at my Mac and just like within a heartbeat, it's synced to the Mac. It's all basically instantaneous. And that is pretty cool. Yeah. And, and I need to spend time like my general experience with the reminders app as well as getting a lot of the features like the day-to-day task management stuff is really like sandpaper. You know, it's just like make creating calendar events in the calendar or adjusting contacts app in the contacts app. Apple just doesn't streamline this stuff. Yeah. And um, uh, so this, this app may be the solution for that. I don't know. But, um, but like I said, I I'm curious about, you know, where all this is heading. I want to spend some time looking at, at what's out there. One last a uh, new software tool I want to spend some time on. I know this segment's gone a little long, but um, we have been talking about Maestrel. Um, we heard about it in the forums, and uh, several people turned us on to it. Um, TJ Luomo sent me a long email. TJ, I think, is starting to get to the drinking status um, of this <laughs> show because he <laughs> keeps coming up. But but either way, it, Maestrel, M-A-E-S-T-R-A-L, is a replacement client app for Dropbox. It's an open source app that connects to Dropbox for you. And before you like shy this off, I understand like a third party client for a third party source. Why would you do that? You should use Dropbox for Dropbox, but the Dropbox app has become way more than it used to be. I remember when we first installed it, it synced a folder and we thought it was great. And now it puts all this um, overhead on your Mac. And I've, I've kind of complained on the show about, well, can I get free of Dropbox, but not really because I need it for so many different things I do, but I've never been really happy with the way it installs itself into your, your system. So when the new MacBook pro arrived, I decided I was not going to install Dropbox. And I went with Maestrel. Um, it, cuts a bunch of features out that you normally would have with Dropbox, but it keeps the ones you need, at least for me. Like I have some shared folders. You have to set those up on the Dropbox website, but Maestrel manages them just fine. It creates a folder on your Mac. And then in Maestrel, you pick which Dropbox folders you want to sync. It's kind of old school Dropbox. I don't know how else to put it, but um, it is very fast and I've been running it for a month and I've not had any sync problems and it is just putting my computer under a lot less overhead related to Dropbox things. And um, that's that's it has a terminal set tool set so you can run tools in the terminal. I mean, it's just it's really a nerd's Dropbox client if there ever was one. Yeah, it's like a it's like if Dropbox made a good Mac app, <laughs> it would be this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's cool. I have, um, I've played with it on my, on my laptop. And one of the big things I want to know is like, what about the selective sync? Cause I have a huge folder in my Dropbox that I keep local on my Mac pro because it has an eight terabyte internal drive on it, but my laptop does not. And so I selective sync that and some other stuff away on my laptop and it works totally yeah. fine. Check That's really the, the one feature yeah. that. I was like, oh yeah, that really needs to work for me, but it's it's great. And the developer seems super on top of things. It and it it uses like the official Dropbox API. It's not doing any like weird stuff with your account, like looking at it and doing something Dropbox wouldn't like. Like Dropbox provides an API that they're using. And so yeah. from the Dropbox perspective, 
you're not doing anything that they would frown upon, I don't think. It's just like third-party writing apps will have you authorize sync through Dropbox, and it goes to a Dropbox web page, and you authorize the sync. This is doing the same thing, but it's just authorizing the selectively synced files to a folder on your Mac. And it's open source. I I trust it, I guess, as much as I trust the data. I don't have anything you know super private on Dropbox anyway because it's a cloud service, but... Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you are unhappy with Dropbox or if you feel like there's too much bloat in their software. Um, I'm giving this one a thumbs up. You may want to give it a try. This episode of MPU is brought to you by Quip. Between small talk at the company holiday party, celebratory drinks and enjoying holiday treats, your mouth does a lot this time of year. Gift it better oral care with Quip, makers of the award-winning electric toothbrush. And you can save up to 40% on their holiday bundle, so it's also a gift to your wallet. The Quip Electric Toothbrush is loved by over 7 million people, and it's easy to see why. Timed sonic vibrations with 30-second pulses guide your dentist-recommended two-minute cleaning, all with a lightweight, sleek design, which is great for both adults and kids. I don't think Johnny Ive has ever designed a toothbrush, but if he did, it would be the Quip. There's no wires, no bulky charger, and the multi-use travel cover doubles as a mirror mount for less clutter. It's all really well-designed and well-thought-out. If you're already on top of your brushing, you can upgrade your Quip with a new smart motor to track and improve your brushing with the free Quip app. And get this, earn rewards for brushing like free refills, products, gift cards to Target, and more. Beyond the brush, Quip has everything you need to build a complete oral care routine like mint or watermelon anti-cavity toothpaste, and floss that expands to clean, or if you're trying to be kinder to the planet, reusable floss picks that replace over 180 disposable picks with every refill. Quip also offers refillable sugar-free gum that delivers long-lasting mint flavor and a refillable mouthwash. In addition to brush heads, Quip also delivers on that floss, toothpaste, mouthwash, and gum refills Every three months, starting at just $5. Shipping is free, so you can save money and skip the hustle of in-store shopping. Their style and affordable electric brushes start at just $25. But if you go to getquip.com MPU, on top of their holiday savings, you'll get your first refill for free. That's your first refill free at getquip.com MPU. That's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P. Dot com slash MPU. Quip, the good habits company. Our thanks to Quip for the support of the show and Relay FM. We had a qu- we had a question from listener John that I thought would be a good one to cover in a feedback episode. Um, John just got himself a new M1 Mac. He's switching from an older Intel Mac. And he just said, can you guys give us some guidance for doing the switch, you know, between processors. Is there anything that we need to be wary of? You know, are there any tricks or hidden, you know, speed bumps that we should know about? And um, we talked a lot about our M1 Max. We haven't talked a whole lot about the idea of a transition between Intel to M1. So, Stephen, let's dig deep on that one. Yeah, so the 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 first thing that, that John asked about, he asked specifically about a 2013 MacBook Pro. Uh, and I bring that up because you may be coming from an older machine. How many times on the show have we talked about the longevity of Mac hardware? I mean, it, it really is astounding how well yeah. a machine that's 9, 10, 11 years old 
will perform, but you may be switching, you know, to a new iMac or a new laptop or something, and you may have issues with direct connection for migration assistant. Now, if you've got anything with Thunderbolt, you can use the Thunderbolt 3 to 2 adapter and like an old Thunderbolt cable, but most people don't have that stuff and it's kind of expensive to get. And and so really if you're going to use migration assistant, doing it over the network is totally fine. It's going to take a little while, like maybe set it up one evening and it'll be done in the morning. But you know, you have those two machines side by side and they make a direct connection and they just copy stuff over over Wi-Fi or over Ethernet. It's um totally fine to use migration assistant over a network. I've done it a couple of times now for other people. It's been fine. Yeah. And I would just add to that Ethernet is better than wireless. So if yes. you've got um, a Mac that has a built-in Ethernet port. I don't remember if the 2013 one did or not, but if not, if you've got a, an Ethernet cable and a couple of adapters, um, that will be a faster mm-hmm. way to do it than over air. Yep. You can even get to FireWire from Thunderbolt if you need to, if you're coming from something really old. So yeah, it, uh, direct connection is always going to be better than wireless, but it's a great, it's a good fallback. It's just going to take some time. So if you want to copy everything, like Migration Assistant is great. It's totally fine to skip versions of Mac OS. You know, if you're stuck on something like High Sierra or Mojave and you're going to go to Monterey, like Migration Assistant can handle all of that just fine. You're not going to run into any issues, I don't think, there. But if you just want to move certain things over, you know, some people, David, view a new Mac as a time to start over. I'm not one of those people. I've got stuff in my home folder from like 2007, probably. Really old stuff. but. If you are starting over, you can simply set up something like file sharing and system preferences. And, you know, say you just want to copy some of your documents over. You know, you you can do that with Migration Assistant. Migration Assistant will let you select just certain subdirectories out of your home folder. Say that you want to copy your desktop and documents, but you don't want to copy pictures and movies or, you know, whatever. Uh, you can customize that to a degree in Migration Assistant, but there's also like totally nothing wrong with setting a Mac up just as new out of the box, putting a new user on it, downloading the apps that you need, and then just over file sharing on your network or even like a sneaker net with a USB drive or something, just pulling over the data that you may want to move. Uh, obviously, that's going to be more a more manual process, probably more time consuming. But if you're building your Mac from scratch, and you just want to bring over certain applications like file sharing is really easy to set up and you can just connect to it. You can even use AirDrop if your old Mac supports that. Not not all older Macs do, but if it does, that that's an option as well. And if you're if, if you've embraced the cloud, if you've got a bunch of stuff in iCloud Drive or Dropbox, um, and maybe even less work. Like photos is a good example. You can, once you connect photos, if you've got the iCloud photo stuff, it's all going to come down anyway. You don't need to necessarily move everything over. Um, so there, there's a, you know, with, with the modern world of cloud sync file storage, setting up a new Mac, even from scratch, is a lot easier than it used to be. It really is. Um, I just had uh, one of my wife's family members bought a the m1 pro 16 inch macbook pro and they were replacing they i felt so sorry for them they were on a 2016 the first butterfly keyboard macbook pro and they're on their second keyboard and now the keyboard and display is dead like it's just a, a nightmare and uh we moved stuff over you know i just helped them over the phone with network-based migration assistant 
So it took a little while, but he didn't have a bunch of cables laying around. I was like, well, I'll just set it up overnight in the morning, text me, and it'll be done. Yeah. And uh worked worked great. And we actually uh he had an issue with some of his passwords missing, and we discovered that he had skipped the step somehow of turning on iCloud keychain on the new system. I was like, well, go to that preference pane, turn on iCloud keychain, it'll make you authenticate, you know, with another device or something, and then all your passwords would be there. So you can definitely use a hybrid of direct migration and cloud, like you said, to to bring things over. It's it's really we got more options than ever. I feel like. How old does the Apple Store do at letting helping people set up new Macs these days? I mean, if you buy a new Mac, will they do the transition for you? Will they do the migration for you in the Apple Store? I think they will. Um, I know they they offer that with like iPhones and iPads. I believe they still do with Macs. You probably got to leave it, you know, overnight or something and. I would imagine they're doing it direct because, you know, they have a <laughs> a drawer full of cables in the back, I'm sure. But I believe they still offer that as a service. If you have friends or extended family that are getting new Macs you hear about, you should strongly recommend they do that. Just over Thanksgiving, I have a family member who has a, I think it's now a nine-year-old Mac, but she has had for years now an old backup of a prior computer with an iPhoto library on it. And like she came to me and says, well, I want to get those old images into my new photos library. But she never did a migrate. As far as I can tell, she never did a migration to begin with. So now she's got these old spinning hard drives with photos on them. And of course, the drives are all starting to fail now. And it's just a big mess because the the initial migration never really happened the way it should have. I, I wish if I, if I had known at the time she's buying one, I would have recommended that she have Apple Store do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, it, it, it's, it, you can get yourself into trouble by not doing migration. If you, especially if you're someone who's not real technically savvy. And, and if you're, you know, getting rid of that machine, like you really want to make sure all your stuff is off of it be, yeah, before you're done with it. So I agree. Um, I really, for most people recommend migration assistant, unless you're starting from scratch and you're kind of one of those type types of users. But there are some other things I think to consider, when moving from Intel, uh, an Intel Mac to an Apple Silicon Mac. Now, for most people, it's like totally straightforward. You're not going to have any problems. But if you're coming from an older machine and you're on Mojave or earlier, you know, you're going to, it's going to be the first time you're post Catalina. And that means yeah. post the 32 bit. A wave of death for applications. <laughs> and so we've recommended this app for years, but if you're in this boat, there's no better tool than Go64. It's a free download from St. Clair Software, and it will just give you a list of uh, titles on your Mac that are still 32-bit uh, applications. I helped somebody with this maybe three months ago, and we ran Go64, and they had a bunch of old Adobe software. He didn't even know it was still on the system. Like, he had like yeah. CS5 or something hanging out. I was like, well, that's not going to move. We'll just get rid of it now. Um, so if you're if you're coming from an older version of Mac OS, not only are you doing the processor transition, but you are also moving past Catalina and all those changes that came with it. And, you know, a few years ago for some of us, but for a lot of people, maybe the first time they're crossing that boundary. And it is a hard boundary. Those apps will not work post Catalina if they're not updated. Yeah. Yeah, and we talked about that a lot back in the day when that released. But just as a reminder, after Catalina, everything has to be 64-bit. There are some apps that are only 32-bit, and the developers have not shown any interest in updating them. 
and those are now dead apps. They are not going to work on your new one Mac. Yep. And you may have some of those kicking around that you may not, you know, I think for most people like, oh, I didn't know that was still installed, but you may come across something that's like vital to the way that you work and you got to contend with that before you upgrade. Yeah. Uh, virtual machines is another issue with yeah. this transition. And it's a bit of a mess. So Parallels version 17, the current version uh, as of our recording, supports Apple Silicon Mac. So you can install Parallels 17 on your new MacBook Pro or new iMac or whatever. But you are limited to running ARM versions of the guest operating system. So you can download Windows 11 for ARM. You have to do through like the Windows Insider program. Parallels has a really good document. I'll have a link in the show notes to it, walking you through how to get Windows 11 uh, up and running. But you're you can't run older versions of Windows at this point. Uh, you can't run basically any Intel OS according to their uh, their documentation. I used to keep a Windows VM, and I haven't had one for years. Um, Really, since I built my PC in my studio, if I need Windows, I have an actual computer now. Yeah. Um, so, so I haven't done this firsthand, uh, but looking at their website and reading through their documentation, it seems like there are still some some limitations on uh, on the parallel side. Yeah, yeah. Um, and VMware's in the same boat. They're working on something, but it's not done yet. But I think anything they're going to they're going to is going to have the same limitations. It's going to have to be an ARM based operating system. Yeah, yeah, because these are really running machines virtually. They're not emulating an Intel processor for these mach- for these virtual machines to run on. I would argue that Fusion, as of version twelve point two, which is the current version, is actually behind Parallels. So their M one support is still quote a technical preview. So like I guess that's a beta, but it's not like officially done. And their Windows 11 support isn't officially done either. And so if you, I mean, if you're already running Fusion, I don't think you have to like go like go buy Parallels and like build a new virtual machine necessarily. But if you find yourself like starting today needing one of these, right now I think Parallels is ahead. But these two have traded blows since the first Intel Mac showed up in like 2006, right? That It's always that Parallels is ahead and then Fusion is ahead. Um, I've, I've always used VMware fusion because I got a license like 10 years ago and just kept upgrading it until I didn't need it anymore. But, um, if you're really dependent on running windows on your Mac, either for work or for a certain application, definitely make sure that you're ready to go, that what you need will run on windows 11, the arm version. Now the ARM version of Windows 11 will run x86 applications. So you are running a virtual copy of Windows that it itself is emulating for the x86 app. So it's like a couple layers deep, but it seems to work just fine. You may get a little bit of a speed hit, but uh, you're probably not editing video in a virtual machine. If you are, like, I don't know what you're doing. Like most people are just running these for one or two applications maybe they need for work that aren't, as demanding that require like a full PC. So you'll probably be okay, but just make sure your ducks are in a row. If you are someone who is reliant on a virtual machine to get your, you know, to get your work done. A couple other options that we haven't discussed is one is just getting a windows machine in the cloud. Um, Microsoft and other vendors have services where you can get a virtual windows computer that is cloud-based. 
as long as you've got a good internet connection. They're a subscription. I think they range from somewhere at about 15 bucks a month up to hundreds, depending on, you know, how much capacity you get. But you can basically rent a Windows PC on a server somewhere and log into it and run it that way on your Mac. Um, and then another one, which is, I actually just mentioned this last week's show, so I won't go to it in great detail, but Code Weaver um, makes a virtualization layer um, where they basically duplicate the Windows calls on a Mac. And this is an Intel uh, Mac app, but uh, Code Weaver's crossover is the one I use. And it has support for some apps. And if it has the app support, it works. And if it doesn't, it doesn't work. So it's kind of a hit and miss thing. But um, for the Windows app I'm using, which is a game, it does have the support. And it just works fine. And I don't have to go through all the parallels and VMware nonsense. It just runs a kind of a little container for one single app. But it all, it's not just games. It has like, like they're really good at getting like Quicken support and some of the Windows apps that a lot of people kind yep. of rely on. So um, that may be worth a try before you go down the rabbit hole of trying to virtualize Windows 11 through, uh, you know, the Microsoft, you know, test account. And it mm-hmm. just, it gets, it gets really deep really quickly. Code weavers might be a good solution too. But uh, the point of all of this is if you're making the transition from Intel to M1 and you're used to running Windows, there are some dragons you got to contend with. Yeah, it's still not as as smooth as it uh as it could be, and 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 maybe it'll get better with time. It's still you know still relatively early days. I mean, I remember when the PowerPC to Intel transition happened. Like these weren't out on day one. Boot camp wasn't out on day one. It took a little time for these things to fall into place, and especially with the ARM transition, Microsoft isn't as far along in that as Apple clearly is, and so you're doing a little bit of waiting on Microsoft and. There's just uh, lots of things to to contend with. I, w- I would just add to that that the good news is that these ARM chips are so blazingly fast that Microsoft is going to have to address this as a priority because if not, yeah. Mac laptops are going to be running circles around Windows laptops for the foreseeable future. Yeah, yeah, you can you can uh, absorb some performance hit because the Apple Silicon so fast. The last thing I would just throw in here is if you have any unusual things on your Intel Mac, like if you're you know running an application that has drivers for external hardware or you're running something that requires a kernel extension, just check with the manufacturer of those things. This is something we say every year on our new Mac OS episode of like, make sure your critical stuff, you know, works on the new OS. Same thing here. Most of for most things for most people you're going to be fine. But if you're running something specialized, take the time to make sure that you're going to be compatible with Apple Silicon. Most everything runs in Rosetta, but there are a few things that don't. And if you are reliant on you know some low level driver support or something, you just want to make sure that they're ready to go on their end. Maybe you've got to just be up to date with your software. Maybe there's a new version you need to upgrade to, but. Just checking those things, you know, off the list before you hit go on the migration assistant will save you some headache on the back end. And, you know, the goodness is we're a year into this transition. So um, the web search is your friend here. If there's a special piece of hardware you're using and you search that name plus M1 Mac, there's probably an article somewhere where somebody is complaining that it doesn't work or bragging that it does, you know, one or the other. 
This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Indeed. Go to indeed.com slash MPU and get a free $75 credit to upgrade your job post. It feels great when you finally got the right answer. The stars align and the numbers add up. The fastest way to reach your potential is with the right people in place. And if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is a hiring partner that gets you what you really want, a short list of quality candidates as fast as possible. Simply because you can do it all, attract, interview, and hire, all at Indeed. You don't want to struggle on your own to find quality candidates, and you don't have to. Indeed can help you hire the right people right now. Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring process, so you can find talent with skills you need through tools like Indeed's Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. Indeed really does make the hiring process so easy. By having all the tools in one place, it takes away so much of what can otherwise be a daunting process. Thanks to Indeed's virtual interviews, you can message, schedule, and interview top talent seamlessly all in one place with Indeed. There's no need to install anything extra. Indeed's virtual interviews work right from your browser, so you can interview virtually with no downloads, plugins, or purchases. So get started right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash MPU and get that $75 credit at indeed.com slash MPU. One last time, indeed.com slash MPU. This offer is valid through December 31st, so act now. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Our thanks to Indeed for their support of the Mac Power Users. So clipboard managers <laughs> spoke about this recently. We told you this was coming, guys. We we knew that we would not cover them all, and we did not. And There's always more. There's yeah. there's always more. So there are a handful that people brought up in the forums or in the email that I just wanted to have like an honorable mentions segment. Yeah, sure. And there's even more out there. Like this is the last batch we're going to talk about. I think like we yeah. talk about this forever. We used to have a section every week on the show about clipboard managers and yeah. Clipboard um, manager update. No one you like special music, you know. Yeah, everyone would skip that chapter in Overcast. <laughs> yes, they would. They would. <laughs> but um, three that sort of filter to the top. One is uh, Copy Clip. There's actually a new version of Copy Clip Two that's that's uh, been out for a little while, and it's like clean and lightweight, which is pretty nice. I think it looks pretty good. It has um, a lot of the similar things that the others have, where you can use keyboard shortcuts to like just automatically copy something in your recent history. Most of these have that, you know, command, you know, one through nine or something. But one thing that I think is, is pretty cool about copy clip two. If you have a MacBook pro with the touch bar, it uses the touch bar when you're in the app to show the recent things on the clipboard. And I think this is the only app we've looked at that has sort of this layout. And so if you have a touch bar Mac, I think this is a really cool feature now. And, and since Apple's all in on the touch bar, this all is in only... on the touch bar, it has a bright future. Um, oh, wait a second. That, that's not right. <laughs> that's not, that's not yeah. right. So yeah, obviously the, the, the touch bars days are numbered, but if you have a touch bar Mac and you're going to, it's going to stick around for a, a long time. Uh, the, and you're a big touch bar person. I think this is a pretty cool feature this may actually be like one of the cooler things i've seen a third-party app do with the touch bar which again is like why it's dying but you know there's that 
Another one is Clippy for Mac. And I just want to say um, that when I saw the name, I was very excited. I expected an icon with a clipboard with little eyebrows. Mm-hmm. And I did, I did not get that. So I cannot recommend this app. I mean. Yeah. What's well, like Clippy with one P? So is it like, is it Clippy? No, it's not Clippy. Yeah. I, I don't uh, know. Maybe it was Microsoft Legal got involved. I don't know. But they, the, uh, yeah. it, 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 maybe that's why it doesn't have a clipboard. Or a clip, uh, uh, paper, a paper clip. clip, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it does not copy like images or files like some of the others do, um, but it has, I think, some uh, some other pretty nice features. It has this like pretty cool contextual menu thing where you can go in and select from your pre saved clips, and uh, and so some people in the forum had had thrown their hat in the ring for Clippy with with one P. Yeah, iClip was also recommended. I'd completely forgot about iClip. I owned yep. this years ago. I remember this because the icon is really cool. You know, it's kind of like the 3D fantastic um icon. And this is probably one of the most feature rich that we didn't cover. Yeah, I was um I also had forgotten about this app. Um I don't know how like super updated it stays i mean just looking at like the marketing stuff it looks like it it doesn't necessarily get um all the love but uh it had some of the features um like the some of the the more like power features and sorting stuff it had in the early days um but it's kind of a blend between like a clipboard manager and like a shelf like it has a shelf component you can drag things in and out of and it has really extensive keyboard shortcuts. So you can control basically the whole thing with customized keyboard shortcuts, which is uh, really nice. I think I think all these apps should have that sort of customization. Yeah. And then we got a series of emails from listeners. I think the first email came from Jeff, but there was a bunch of them saying, I can't believe you guys didn't cover the clipboard manager in Better Touch Tool. And then I thought, well, wait a second. I use Better Touch Tool every day. I've never seen anything in there about a clipboard manager. And I went into the app, went into the preferences, started digging around. I couldn't find it. And then I thought, well, what the heck? I'll make a clipboard shortcut because you can do keyboard shortcut in Better Touch Tool. And I made the look at the action list. And sure enough, there is a clipboard manager in the action list in Better Touch Tool. So you could put this you know, on the touch bar, you could put it on a mouse gesture because better touch tools awesome that way, but they have, or, or he has built in a clipboard manager and better touch tool that I didn't even realize was there. This was the shocker for me of this episode. I'm like, Oh man, how did I not know this was here? Yeah. <laughs> it was did news you, to me Were too. you aware of it? No. Yeah. No I mean, idea. It's like, yeah. <laughs> uh, they're everywhere. Everybody has a clipboard manager. Yeah, but this is a good one. I mean, it's got a list of your shortcuts. You can paste it as plain text, as standard. You can paste files. I mean, you can you can put it in one line at a time. I just thought, um, you know, the the Better Touch Tool developer quit his day job and went full time on Better Touch Tool now about two years ago. And this app just has got so much gold in it. I mean, there are so many great things about Better Touch Tool. So it's not surprising to me that it has this feature and I didn't know about it. But, you know, good on you, Better Touch Tool. So what was it? I think it was Conti at the beginning of the episode who talked about how he doesn't want to have extra tools. And he uses Better Touch Tool for window management. Conti, I'm telling you, now you got your clipboard manager too. You don't need another app. You're good. (laughs) 
<laughs> and uh, what I like about this is if you sort of work the way that Better Touch Tool does, then this will feel very natural. So it's that's one thing I like about these apps that include a clipboard manager with their other features. Like if Alfred's already hardwired into your brain, then the Alfred clipboard manager is like really easy to adopt. So if you're all in a better touch tool or keyboard maestro or whatever, they have uh, these tools that are kind of already in the flow of your other tasks that you're doing in that application. All right. I want to move on to stuff we're playing with. We, we missed this segment in some of the um, feedback shows, but I definitely wanted this one in this episode because you have done something, Stephen. You have done something. And, yeah. Uh, Do you want to hear you it? You surprised me. Yes, you have surprised me, and I'm worried about you. But tell us what you've done. Well, let me play you a little sample of it. Hang on. boy did you hear that you've gone down the clicky keyboard rabbit hole haven't you i have yeah i built a keyboard i thought that was mike's thing how did you how did you get into this um because mike's a bad influence so we had <laughs> when we were doing the podcast a one of our plans was well we'll build a keyboard together like on stream or like in the podcast line or something of course i don't know if you've noticed there's a little supply chain issue so it took a long yeah, yeah. time for all my parts to get in they finally got in. We finally got time to do it. So there's a couple links in the show notes. You can see pictures of this thing. So I have purchased the Keychron Q1. We've talked about Keychron before. They make a, a wide range of keyboards, uh, but the Q1 is their uh, their sort of like enthusiast keyboard. Like you can buy like the K1 or K4 or something, and it's uh, it's fantastic. But the Q1 lets you customize it, put your own switches in that sort of thing. And so, um, I got the bare bone kit, uh, with the Q one and, uh, I bought some switches from, uh, novel keys or NK. So there's all, there's all this terminology in this world that I'm not fully comfortable with yet. So, you know, sure. I don't, I don't really speak the language yet, but, uh, I have their silk red switches in it, which are very lightweight switches. One thing that I was, concerned about was a lot of pressure needed to uh to actuate the key and so these are very lightweight they're probably actually too lightweight i think eventually i'm going to swap them out with something that takes a little more force because these are very trigger happy switches uh but i put those in and then the the piece de resistance is the keycap set so i don't know if you've looked at these in the show notes yet but is a keycap set from drop uh, the MT3 Extended 2048 keycap set. And they look like classic Mac keys. They're beige. Yeah. They use the old typeface. And all of the like media keys and everything, they have that same feel. And you can get custom icons. So like I have uh, one you know, that looks like uh, a little iPod. And one looks like the shortcuts icon. And you get a little smiley finder face. Or the little Mac icon. And as soon as I saw the this keycap, th these keycaps actually what set off this project for me. I was like, I want a keyboard with those on it. And we worked backwards from there. So it looks like this kind of weird mashup of like modern and old Mac hardware. And uh, I'm really loving it. I, I really love this keyboard. I did not expect, I did not, I figured I'd build it and it would be fun. And maybe I put it on my PC just to use when I'm streaming or, you know, doing something over there. 
but it's plugged into my Mac Pro. It's been here for several weeks now as my full-time keyboard. Yeah, I, I totally, I think the keycap set for you is is what brought you in. I also don't expect you're going to go like full Hurley here and like start building a bunch of these. I feel like this is the kind of thing where you get the one you like and you're good. But am I wrong? Are you already looking at your next one? Uh, No, I mean, I really like this this keycap set. And like I said, if I do anything, I'm going to put maybe slightly stiffer switches in it, but not anytime super soon. Like uh, I, I plan on kind of keeping it as it is because I am like, I haven't typed on mechanical keyboard in almost a decade. I mean, I used the Apple extended two keyboard for years, the best keyboard of all time, but eventually I had trouble with um, like my hands and wrist with it. And I think in hindsight, a lot of that was the width of the keyboard. This is a 65%. So it's, it's not much wider than the, Apple Bluetooth keyboard, so my mouse and trackpad can still be very close. And for me, for whatever reason, that's what I prefer. That's what works best for me. And you know, a couple of weeks of full time usage, I haven't had any any problems. But I want to be careful about that. So if I make any tweaks to this, or if I build one down the road, I, I don't. I think it'll be pretty far into the future because I, I just want to be cautious about not causing any problems in my in my hands. Yeah, I um I went down this rabbit hole about a year ago, uh, prompted by Mike Hurley and also Mike Schmitz. The two mics in my life were both talking in my ear about this, and so I did. Like you, I got a, a Keychron keyboard. I got the one with the swappable switches, but it was before they made the Q one. Mine was one of their standard like keyboards, but you could remove the switches and. Mm-hmm. I added to it the drop holy panda switches, which I would recommend. I think they're really nice if you're like want to go down this. If you're not happy with your switches, I'd recommend get a couple holy pandas and see if that works for you. Um, in fact, I'll mail you. I've got a couple extra. I'll mail you one. You can okay. just see what you think. But the um, uh, it was really nice and I enjoyed it. I didn't have a like a bespoke set of keycaps on it. I ordered one in like one of those things like and it's like a year ago i ordered it and they still haven't shown up yeah so i don't don't know i mean mike mike uh, hurley told me if you go down this thing you have to understand that things will just randomly show up and you'll forget that you ordered them and i know that i've got one set of keycaps i don't even remember what they look like but they're supposed to come to me sometime maybe in the next year i don't know but the um the problem was my daughter loved the keyboard more than life itself and she kept she kept making moves on it like that. I really like that. Key. And finally I'm like, okay, would you like to take my keyboard to school with you? And she said, yes. Mm-hmm. So I lost my keyboard and um, it went off with her. And so then I got one of the Apple extended keyboards with the, um, with the touch ID on it. Yeah. Which it's fine. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I, I don't think I'm as into keyboards as a lot of people are like, Clicky keyboards are cool. I think it'd be fun to build one of these like you did, but it's just, you know, like I said, I gave mine away when, when your kid asks you for something, it's hard to say no. That's you true. Know, but, uh, that is, that's definitely true. Yeah. Uh, and I misspoke. Uh, I just want to correct it. The, the Q1 that I built is a 75%, not a, not a 65%. So the arrow keys are slightly separate, which is what I wanted. I wanted to be able to feel around them. Um, Cause I use them all the time for text selection. Like, I don't yeah. know how many how many hundreds of times a day, but yeah. um, yeah, it's it's a whole world, right? And you can definitely get sucked in. I mean, there's a whole like keyboards channel in the Relay Discord, 
like i don't know what they're talking about it's all yeah. <laughs> they're like yeah. and it's all beautiful right like i totally I think this is one thing Mike likes about it is like the aesthetic, like you can build exactly what you want, which is what I did. Like I picked this keycap set and it looks exactly the way I want it to. Right. And so you, you that customization is endless, but uh, it's definitely not for everybody. It can be a very expensive hobby. I mean, I don't really want to add up how much this keyboard cost me, but it was a lot, <laughs> you know? Sure. Um, but if that's your hobby, then go for it. You know, it's and I think there's no better time to get into it. If talking to Mike and other people who are into it, it really seems to have had like a renaissance through the pandemic, through like work from home and people just looking for things to do inside away from people. And uh, I think building your own keyboard has come a long way. Yeah, well, I think like the navy blue one you got is really pretty. Now, is it Bluetooth or is it wired? Uh, it is wired. So, yeah. and I have one of those cool, like curly, um, fabric wrapped USB-C cables. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's plugged into the back of my pro display. That's one of the ones that uses that. Um, and you can switch it between Mac and windows layout and then you remap the key. So I have, you know, regular control option, command key, like where they belong. So moving from an Apple keyboard, all the, you know, all the modifier keys are in the right place. Yeah, no, I, I get it. And, um, and like, the nice thing with these Keychron keyboards is the switches are hot swappable without you having to get a soldering iron out. Cause that's yes. like next level where you solder the switches in. But yeah, well, I'm glad you're doing it. Um, I feel like you found the perfect keycap set for you. I think it's going to be hard for you to find something you like better. I mean, it's like made for me, right? I mean, yeah, I have a little iPod button and I click it, it opens the music app. Like what more could I need? No, I, I don't know how you could get better than that. Honestly. And I don't know what I'm going to do with these switches when they show up because I don't have a keyboard to put them in. <laughs> Maybe I'll put them in my daughter's keyboard. Or know. you just build another one. Man, you are you are a bad influence. You're yeah. A bad okay. Influence. Oh, okay, yeah. Mister Mister Sparks. Yeah. <laughs> we all know who's the bad guy on this podcast. Um, the uh, speaking of bad influences, we talked about Elgato. Uh, I think on our last feedback show, and I've spent more money with them. Um, yeah, I've gone all in on Elgato in the last month. I usually don't try to talk about stuff I buy for podcasting because that's most people don't care. But um, there's two things that just have given me a lot of delight. Um, the first is Elgato made a mic arm, and it's a low-profile mic arm. It, it's hard to explain, but most mic arms that you put on your desk, and, and the point of them is that the mic doesn't shake. You know, you don't hear people thumping the desk and then it comes through on the audio. It gives you a way to isolate the mic and put it right in front of your face. But they're always tall. They've got this big arm. And a lot of times, the way my desk is set up, they actually block the screen when I'm using them. And I'm always like trying to peek around the edge of the mic arm. It always made me crazy. And I had an old kind of crappy one and the uh the springs were starting to make noise so every time i'd move it it would sound like you know like like an old man's joints when he sits down (laughs) that's not that's not good (laughs) this isn't gonna last much longer so i went and i and i got like an email from elgato and they had this new low profile i bought it it's a hundred dollars i love it it's the best mic arm i've ever had it is low profile it's like two arms that rest on top of each other and they rotate laterally other than rather than upside down up and down so they don't get in the way of the screen they've got channels in them that you can put the cable and they have little metal magnetic strips that go on top so it's easy to change the cable without having to like rewire the whole thing it's just like oh and the other thing is like the clamp um 
historically all the mic boom arms and maybe i just never bought a good one before but they always have these chintzy little clamps that go to the desk and then as you move the mic around the clamp slowly works its way off the desk yeah so then one day you're working and suddenly the mic just goes nope and just falls down and mm-hmm. um, and also it's like denting the bamboo of the desk because i'm trying to like clamp it down so hard harder yeah. than i should so it's just like there's a lot of things I don't like, but this one has a big clamp and it's solid and it hasn't moved since I installed it like a couple months ago. Yeah, Elgato like straight up makes the best clamps in the industry. I'm yeah. just gonna call it. Yeah, they also have a, a non-low profile model if you want that. But man, it's just like who whoever is at Elgato right now and in charge of their design is like really cares about making stuff that people who need it every day can rely on. And it's like all the little details they get right. I'm just so impressed with them. And we talked about their lighting last time, but the other thing I bought is a, an audio interface, which, you know, I have a very expensive um, USB pre audio interface that I've had for a long time, but it's not all that great for podcasting. And I saw they had this one, it's under $200 and I like I've liked everything I bought them from them so much. I said, well, let me just buy one and try it for a week. And then I sent um, audio samples to our audio our editor Jim Metzendorf, and I sent audio samples to um, to my editor JF for the for the screencast. And both of them said I sound good. In fact, JF says he likes the sound of it better than the other one. And um, so it sounds great, but it's also got just the little features you like because it sits on the desk the mic XLR cable plugs into the back of it instead of the side of it, which on all the ones I've had before, they plugged in on the side. So you've got this ugly cable sticking out on your desk. And I hated that. Um, It's got a line mic level that goes into it. It's got a big knob on it and you just turn the knob. It's it's like a very simple interface and it's got a, a touch capacitive top where if I just barely tap the top of it, it mutes the mic entirely. Ooh, and so, and when you mute the mic, all the little dots around it turn red. So it's clear to you that you've got a, you've got a muted mic. Now, over the years, I've used one of these foot pedals and Steven made fun of me because he could hear me click it. He could actually see the waveform when he edited the show. Um, you cannot see this because it's just barely tap it and it works. It's just as convenient as using your foot. And it's, it's, it's better because it is a, a dead switch. I mean, once you mute it, you cannot hear anything. Whereas those, those line um, mic mutes, usually a little bit of noise gets through. And it also means it's one less XLR cable to have, you know, mess up the recording. Cause mm-hmm. if you've got a foot switch, you've got to have a switch. You've got to have a cable from the switch to the device and then a, a cable from the device to the, from the switch to the mic. Well, now it's just one switch, uh, cable directly from the mic to this box. It's just like, you know, everything just got better with this, you know? And I, uh, I am really increasingly starting to look at Elgato as a company where when they make a new product, I immediately consider buying it if it's something I have use for. Cause I just, I'm getting to that trust level with them. Yeah. Me too. Uh, I actually, over the break, hung up a ring light from them over my overhead desk. And it's yeah. like really like seamless, beautiful light now. Um, that hasn't shown up in any videos yet. Well, no, in my, my unboxing of the Mac Portable, I used it. It's great. And I have now ordered uh, one of these uh, <laughs> interfaces for my Wave PC. XLR. Yeah, because yeah, I'm using a Mix Pre 3 on my PC. And it's like way overkill for what I need just for like 
plugging in a lav mic to stream. And so um, I've got one now <laughs> on the way for the PC. I think it's fantastic. And it, really, I think it, if you're just recording you know, one input, if you don't need multiple tracks, like this would not work for me when we did live shows because I need like sure. a bunch of tracks coming in. Sitting at your desk, I kind of think this could be like the default, like this is what you get to get started. Um, and it, is, it sounds like it could really scale with you for a long time. Well, I, I'm way beyond getting started with podcasting. I've yeah. been doing it year you know, over a decade and it's fine. I mean, I've been using it on this show for two months. I don't think anybody's listening has written in to say that I sound different. So it works. That's cool. All right. Well, sounds like we got some fun gear. We got some fun software and a lot of good feedback um, this, this uh, past month. Thanks, everybody, for sending in the feedback. We really appreciate it. We want the show to be great, and occasionally we miss something. And when a listener lets us know and they're nice about it, we like to use that. So please let us know. Uh, you can uh, sound off on this stuff by going to the forums at talk.macpowerusers.com, and we have a separate thread there for each show. Um, and we also get your feedback. Was I think it's feedback at macpowerusers.com. Yep, yep. And, that comes uh, to both of us. Yeah, that comes out. You know, go go easy on us with the email. We're both struggling with it, <laughs> but the, uh, <laughs> but now they have fast mail. Who knows, right? But the uh, either way, uh, we appreciate all the feedback we get from you. Thank you to our sponsors, Smile, Samebox, Quip, and Indeed, and we'll see you next time.